Bible, even going back to the time of Ezra, it's when the word of the Lord was read, people out of respect stood. And I would like to, if you cannot stand this morning, I understand that, but if you are able, would you please stand out of respect for the reading of the word of God? The word of God says, therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, speak to us through thy word this morning. This word has been breathed out from the very mouth of God, and would we do well to listen to it attentively this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're in this section where Paul has been dealing with really a division that had arisen in the church at Rome between two groups, groups known as the Stronger Brothers and the Weaker Brothers. And we've been in this for now, this section of scriptures for now several weeks. But this morning, the one thing we want to see is that our God is a God of diversity, and yet within diversity, there needs to be great unity. In Revelation chapter 7, the Apostle John writing in the Apocalypse there, beginning in verse 9, after these things I looked, and behold, a great mul multitude, which no one could number, of all nations and tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here in Revelation chapter 7, we're given a glimpse of a wonderful worship scene in heaven. You find the redeemed people of God. They're gathered around the throne room. And what are they doing? They're singing. They're singing salvation song. But I want you to notice who is gathered. John says it's a great multitude from all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. So what we see here in Revelation 7, you've got a vast multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual group gathered. So that's, that's people from everywhere, all countries and backgrounds and languages. And so what we see here in Revelation 7 is there is tremendous diversity. Each group there would have had different customs, certainly different preferences, ideas, different thoughts on how things should take place, and yet they comprise the one body of Christ. So how can the church which is so diverse, 
be united. I mean, how do you have un um, unity amidst tremendous diversity? Well, we clearly see in Revelation 7, this is a diverse group, and not just diverse like we use the term, but incredibly diverse group, that what they have in common is ultimate and defining. What do they have in common? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above all, one Holy Spirit, and one table of the Lord all coming together to produce and form one body. That is the corporate body of Christ, what we, we might call the church universal. So, yes, there's just one body of Christ. That's it, one church. There is unity, but I want you to know it is not uniformity. Uniformity is where everyone thinks alike, everyone acts alike, dresses alike, eats the same things, speaks the same language, prefers the same music, but that's not God's intention. It was never God's intention. If we just even look around today, we see that our God loves diversity. And you see this everywhere. Look at the animal kingdom and see the great variety even within each species. Look at humanity and see the diverse people groups. If you look at geography, look around at the different geographical regions, each with its own distinct beauty and each created by the wisdom of God. Certainly he loves diversity. So what can we learn from that this morning? <laughs> that God never wanted cookie-cutter Christians. He never, his intention was not that we ever all look alike and dress alike, speak alike, nor think alike. Diversity is a good thing, but unity is required. Now, if we are to be one function, one body functioning as God's ambassadors on the earth, there must be unity. You can't have different things going on there. Now, I want you to think with me. We're in Romans chapter 15. In first century Rome, you have to keep in mind there was only one church, just originally one local church, as the gospel was first being preached. There was not a Baptist church on one corner and go down the road and you find a Baptist or Methodist church. You couldn't turn the corner over here and find a Methodist or Presbyterian or Nazarene. If one was converted to Christ... There were not multiple church options for the new Christian to attend. There was only one. It was only one that existed. Now today in our culture, if you don't like the way that one operates, then you can go down the road and look for one that's more suitable for you. And by the way, let me just say, I don't think that is wise. But it is possible. But that was not possible in Rome. So the church in Rome, okay, the gospels were spreading, as you see in the book of Acts. The church in Rome had people from diverse, but more diverse, even opposing backgrounds. So in this one body, in this one local church, you would have had people who were different ethnically, Jew and Gentile. Politically, you had slave owners and slaves. Socioeconomically, rich and poor. Culturally, of course, if you go back to the Jew and Gentile distinction again. And yet God, in his wisdom, placed these diverse groups within one church. So as we see the problem that was arising in Romans 15, in Rome there were observant Jews who had come to faith in Christ. But also there had been pagan Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ. Now these two groups, the, the Jews and the Gentiles, formerly were hostile to each other. But now they're brothers and sisters and they had to learn to worship and serve God together. 
Now, can you see the potential for problems here? The, they would have not thought alike on most issues. These two groups did not have a lot in common, but they had what was most important in common. Now, today, I really am convinced, today, if you had this situation, here's the counsel that would be given. Well, why don't you go down the road and you start a Jewish Christian church and you all start a Gentile Christian church because you're going to have more in common. You're going to be more comfortable there. But that was foreign to the mind of God. That was never his intention. I was thinking about this this past week. And when I was in college, we were required to do Christian service. And so I went on Christian service. It was a Sunday afternoon. And there we were sharing the gospel. There were two inner city, this is in Florida, two inner city African-American kids who had made a profession of faith. I had led them to the Lord. So to me, the most important thing, once you come to faith in Christ, you need to be discipled. Where do you get discipled? A local church. So I'm like, hey, we're going to church here in a few hours. You're going to come with me. Now, you can start, if you know anything about my background, you can see where this is going to be somewhat humorous. So I brought them to church with me. I did not ask them to change clothes. They were in their clothes indicative of an inner city environment. This was the 90s. These guys had big afros and they had the pics in them. All right. And so as we arrived at church, I, we had the campus church. All right. This is one we were required to go to. Now at the campus church, and I'm not criticizing anything here. I'm just stating the obvious. Everyone is dressed to the nines. And I mean to the nines. There's, it's everyone. And we, that was the required dress for us. And so there were signs of being affluent uh, or being wealthy everywhere from the, from the way that the sanctuary was structured to the people growing up to the way they were dressed. I mean, it was very obvious, but it was by and large very homogenous, mostly white people. And what they decided to do that night was they had a prelude before the service, and they were playing classical music. And I can't remember if it was Bach or Beethoven. And I remember thinking, I was sitting there, and I had these two guys. And they literally had FUBU gear on, if you know FUBU, back in the 90s. So they're sitting there with me, and I thought, ah, this, this probably seems as foreign as if they would go to a different country. Now, we had some people, not church leaders, and this was not based on racism at all, okay? So take the idea of race out. But the idea was, well, maybe you should direct them to Mount Olive Baptist Church, another church in town. It was our sister church, but it was a sister black church in town. And the idea is that that's more their culture. They're going to feel more comfortable there. And again, it wasn't like don't have them here. That was not the attitude at all. It was just they're going to be more comfortable in a different place. Now, the question I ask you, was that God's intent based on Romans 14 and 15? And I'm going to answer no. It was not God's intent. It's the Lord who placed diverse people groups in one body, and it is the church's job by the power of the Holy Spirit to learn to love and welcome and receive one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what needed to happen here. See, the part of the beauty of the church is actually found in her diversity. This unity, well, it's because of the new life we share in Christ. Now, as you look at the scripture today, you see Paul has been dealing with these issues that arose. And as I said, it's really between two groups that we're told. Stronger brothers and weaker brothers. But this division probably, not exclusively, was along ethnic lines. Jew and Gentile. So probably, and again, I have to say probably here, I don't want to read too much in the text. It was the observant Jew who had come, back from the, who had come out of the Mosaic law who is still holding on to some very strict scruples. Probably pagan Gentiles understood the freedom a little bit better. Now, the Apostle Paul, he's a realist. He knew that you had to meet people where they are, not where you'd like them to be. So the weaker brother 
Because of this strict Jewish background, he continued to hold some pretty strict preferences, scruples, according to the law. What he was going to eat, what he would not eat, what he would drink, on what days he would worship or not worship. Now the stronger brothers, and I believe this included some Jews as well, they knew these laws were no longer binding. They knew and celebrated their freedom, which was in Christ. But they sometimes flaunted it as well. So a conflict was rising. The weaker brothers began to judge the stronger brothers, but they were judging them based on their own preferences. Not on the law of God, but on what they thought. But at the very same time, the stronger brothers were told were despising. They were looking down their noses at these weaker brothers as being legalist. Now Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to address and correct it. He knew that the stronger brothers who celebrated freedom were theologically correct. They were free. The old covenant, with all its regulations, had been abrogated in Christ. No longer binding at all. But Paul was not willing to hurt or throw away the weaker brothers because they, too, were part of the body of Christ. They mattered. And Paul gave some advice to them. He told them, he said, don't violate your conscience. And we see that in Romans 14, 23. Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. And notice the last tag phrase there. For whatever is not from faith. Whatever that's not of faith is sin. So the weaker brother was free, but his conscience had not caught up to his understanding. And it is neither safe nor wise to ever violate your conscience. You should never do so. But Paul also knew that the stronger brother had his own issues going on, and he issues words of caution, also found in chapter 14. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Yes, you're free to eat the pork, but don't destroy God's work because of it. All things indeed are pure. All things. You can eat what you want, guys. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine. You are free to do both nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Listen, guys, in your freedom, you're hurting your brother. Spiritually, you're hurting him. You're tripping him up. And this ought not to be. I love what Martin Luther said. He said, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. Amen. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Yes, there's irony. Yes, it is a paradox. But look clearly, and you're going to see what he was talking about. Both groups, both groups were to call to mind that they were not the judge. All believers would stand before the Lord one day. Cut out what you're doing, guys. Knock it off. Chapter 14, verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Why is Paul saying that? He's reminding them of this central truth. There is one Lord, and you're not him. Jesus is Lord, and he's Lord of the weaker brother, and he's Lord of the stronger brother, and both groups would stand before him one day, and he, at that time, would make all things right. Jesus wanted these people to walk in humility 
and love. So what's the solution? Well, that's where we pick up our text today. Chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, because Jesus is the Lord and everyone's going to stand before him, you need to quit what you're doing and receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Receive one another. Now that sounds easy enough, but this word receive does not mean just to accept, but rather it means to warmly welcome each other. Or in other words, roll out the red carpet for these people. Don't just tolerate them, celebrate them. Joyously receive the other. And here's what he said. Even as Christ has received you. Now, friend, think about this for just a moment. How did Christ receive you? And he said, how? So think about in your own salvation. How did he receive you when you were so good and so cleaned up and had all your act together? Far be it. Christ received you in your sin, in your weakness, in your imperfections, and in your mess. And he says, now you receive them. Now the Lord Jesus, when he received us, he did not do it reluctantly. He was not begrudging receiving us into his kingdom, but rather with great joy. Great joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And he said, now you do the same for each other. But here's where the rub came. This was hard because these two groups thought and lived so differently. They didn't have a lot in common other than Christ. And those differences, by the way, are not sinful. They were preferential. We're talking about preferences here. This entire section of Scripture, Romans 14 and Romans 15, is dealing with a thing in theology known as the adiaphora. You don't need to know the word adiaphora, but it's a fancy term. And what it means is the adiaphora are things neither expressly commanded but nor are they forbidden in the scriptures. Adiaphora are morally neutral things, gray areas, matters of conscience, matters upon which believers are going to have different opinions. In these adiaphora, in these gray areas, you and I cannot, or should not, bind the conscience of our, bro of our brothers with our own preferences. Okay, you cannot do that. Now, here's where the problem comes even today. Some people have very strong convictions, very strict scruples, and they don't see anything as morally neutral. They do believe these are sin issues, and they need to be instructed. The one person, now notice what Paul just said, it's good neither to eat meat nor to drink wine. The idea is it's okay if you do, but it's good not to if your brother's offended. So there's one person who's convinced that if you ever, ever have a taste of wine or a glass of wine, it's sinful, and the other person's convinced he is free to do so. This was a situation in Rome. And by the way, the Jews didn't have a problem with the wine. They would drink wine. They had a problem with the ritual nature of the wine being brought. Ritual impurity here. So in the situation in Romans, they were really talking about food and drink laws based on Jewish background. But let me just say today, we don't deal with those things. But we have our own adiaphora, and Christians divide over it all the time. We usually don't argue over the sin of eating pork. Most of us like a good BLT, all right? Most of us are eating bacon. We're mostly not dividing over Jewish holy days, although there are some Christians who still think the Sabbath should be on Saturday. But many will argue over the sinfulness of a glass of wine. Many people argue over certain Bible versions. Many people will argue over women wearing pants or women wearing makeup, or how you must dress to come to worship, 
or the music style in the church. And I'm suggesting to you, because these are not commanded nor forbidden, these are examples of adiaphora, morally neutral, things that the Bible isn't commanding, nor things the Bible's forbidding. But here's the one big caveat, and it's absolutely important that you get this. Scripture imposes one incredibly binding thing upon all actions. The end goal of everything we do must be for the glory of God. Notice our text in verse 7. To receive one another to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, I love what Paul wrote here because he goes to the minutia. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, and Paul says, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even actions that are morally neutral can become sinful when they're not done for God's glory. Now let's just put some flesh on this a little bit. Dress code for worship. We all have strong preferences on this. I'm going to suggest to you, you can be sinning by wearing a pair of jeans to worship. You can be sinning by wearing a suit to worship. How? If you begin to judge your brother for what he is wearing, and you think that what you're wearing makes you more spiritual, and you judge others by your own preference, you're now in sin. Or if you're wearing something more informal and you're like, I'm going to show those legalists that they're wrong, and I'm going to do it just to flaunt that, then your freedom now is sinful. Neither one of those are for the glory of God. That's not what we do. All of us, let's take this area of dress. We should all dress with a view to God's glory. You must be convinced of the rightness of the action and its acceptance before God. Because it's not commanded. It's not forbidden. In Isaiah chapter 1, you see people doing very religious things, and it looked very good externally. They were going to temple. They were offering sacrifices. And God says, do away with it. It's making me sick. It was sinful in God's eyes. Why? Because what was the motive behind them? It, what they were doing was good. Why they were doing it was bad. So they were going to temple, and they are burning, offering sacrifices, not for God's glory, but their own. It was a show. And what I'm suggesting is that God requires that our lives, everything you do, folks, everything is lived with an eye toward his glory. He's the all-glorious one. So everything, when you got up this morning and you decided to come to the Lord's, to come to church and gather for worship, why? For his glory. When we come to the table, why? His glory. When we later on go to eat, why? It is for his glory. All things with an eye toward that. The very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. In the catechism, we, Sandy and I do with our children, the second question, if you would ask Ezra or Adar or even Gabby at this point, who created you? God. Why did God create you? For his glory. How do you glorify God? By loving him and obeying him. So what brings God glory in the church, folks? That you and I, his children, walk and live in love. If you and I begin to exercise our freedom in a way that is not concerning or doesn't regard our brother's welfare, that doesn't glorify God. That's not living in love. And that morally neutral act now just became an occasion for sin. 
So Paul said, receive each other as God has received you. Well, how did Christ receive you? Think about your justification. Christ received you with your sin and your flaws, your weaknesses. Now receive others who think very differently than you with their sins, their flaws, and their, and their weaknesses. And the apostle calls the whole church to two things. Consider Christ and consider the big picture. Look at verses 8 through 12. He says, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes four passages from the Old Testament. So the very first thing that you have to understand is you're to consider Christ. In the church, in this body, you are called for one thing, to serve. You serve your brother. The kingdom of God is made up of servants, not bosses. We don't need CEOs. As an example, though, Paul said, look to Christ. Look to the Son of God. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ has become a servant. Jesus Christ has become a servant. The divine Son, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, became a servant. Now the word servant here is interesting. There's two words for servant in the New Testament. Doulos and diakonos. The word doulos is used most of the time. It's the word slave that's translated bondservant a lot of times. Diakonos, where we get a word deacon, it also means service. It sometimes will be translated minister. Now I want you to look at this. I think this is important. Here it says Jesus Christ became a servant. It means diakonos. You don't find Jesus Christ being the doulos of his people. He's not the slave of his people. But where the word doulos is used for Christ, where he was a slave, is in Philippians 2, in reference to God. He was going to be a slave to God and serve his people. So he was a slave to the Father, and he was the diakonos, the servant to his people. The word doulos emphasizes who you belong to. You belong to God. You're his servant, his slave. Diakonos emphasizes what you do. You serve. And then the kingdom, the kingdom of God, we are both doulos, slaves to God, and diakonos, servants to his people. So what is he saying here? Get busy serving your brother. Seek his welfare. And this is the exact opposite of the culture in which we live. The idea of denying ourselves or suppressing our rights for the sake of anyone else, it is foreign to our culture. It is anathema. They call down the strictest judgment for that. The mantra of our culture, and it's crept into the church, is you do you. Whatever makes you happy. So the ethos of our culture is the autonomous self. Well, what do you mean by the autonomous self? That means you determine your own identity. You create your own destiny. And I see and fear that far too much of that has made inroads into the body. The idea of personal happiness. That's the arbiter of what you should do or not do. Everyone says, well, if it makes you happy, well, then if it makes you happy. And you keep hearing that over and over. Like, that's the arbiter. That's the judge. Should you do it? What well, does it make you happy? So everyone starts to base decisions on whether or not it will add or detract from their happiness. You quickly get into a mess there, by the way. For example, Christian marriage. People say, if marriage no longer makes you happy, you've got to move on. 
Life is too short to be unhappy, right? God doesn't want you unhappy. I hear this too far many times. No, God doesn't want you to be happy, right? So no, that so it must be I married the wrong person. I'm not happy in this. What about motherhood? And listen, young ladies, we have to recover biblical motherhood. It's a wonderful thing. But our culture says if motherhood is too restrictive, don't seek it. If it's too burdensome, remember, put yourself on the top of the list. Don't forget yourself in service. You too have a right to be happy. The idea of sacrifice and service is not the air we breathe in our society. These instructions that Paul's given seems foreign, and they also seem restrictive. You mean to tell me I had the right to do something and God expects me to give up that right to serve my brother because he has a problem with it? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm suggesting. The Bible has all kinds of commands. Marriage, parenting, when men and women's roles, sexual behavior, gender identity. Everything the Bible says is opposed to the cultural idols of our day. But let me suggest this to you. Actually, it's not a suggestion. Life in the kingdom of God is antithetical to life in the kingdom of man. They're opposed to each other. You can't reconcile them. And when you go back to ancient Rome, much like our society, the Romans felt they were born to rule. You don't serve. Servants is weakness. So they saw it as a weakness, and God sees service as greatness. Remember when Jesus asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom? He said, you want to be great in my kingdom? Wonderful, great question. Let him be the chief servant. That's greatness. Now Paul is telling the strong brother, he says, listen, brother, I know you're right. You have the right to do that, but you're hurting your brother, so stop it. And he says, and by the way, consider Christ. Christ restricted himself. Hebrews 12, 30. For consider him who endured, speaking of Christ, such hostility from sinners against himself. You want to talk about the greatest irony in the world is Christ enduring hostility from sinners. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. If you think what you are called to do in serving your brother's heart, he says, then look at Christ. See what he did. Don't faint. Don't complain. Christ endured shame and ridicule and scoffing and the brutality of the cross to serve his father and redeem his sinful people. So don't grow weary. Don't grow discouraged in this walk of faith. Keep your eye toward God. He will sustain you. Listen to his voice. So that's the first thing, consider Christ. And secondly, as we start to close, look at the bigger picture. Why did Jesus become a servant? It says to confirm the promises that were made to Israel, but also so that the Gentiles would glorify God through the their mercy shown to them. He said both Jews and Gentiles, the two groups fighting, would benefit by Christ. So look at the first part. Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. What's he talking about? God made these grandiose promises, beginning with Abraham, and the Lord Jesus came to show that God is faithful to fulfill every promise he made. So the promises, first of all, back in Genesis 3, a seed is coming who's going to come, a seed of the woman, and crush the serpent's head. And by the way, this seed would be a son or descendant of Abraham. He would also be a descendant of David. And when he does come, he will crush the serpent's head, and through doing so, he's going to bring blessing to the entire world. That's a great promise. Well, who is this seed? Who is this son of Abraham and son of David? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Where did he deal the death blow and crush the head of the serpent? 
at the cross. How is he a blessing to the entire world, to, to all the people worldwide who will put their faith and trust in him? Go back to Revelation 7 where we opened up. Where's the redeemed come from? All countries, all nations, all language groups. But he didn't just come to confirm God's promises. He also came to bring mercy to the Gentiles. And he says, when the Gentiles receive mercy, they will glorify God by receiving the mercy. Doug Moo in his commentary said this. Paul cites every part of the Old Testament. And there's four quotations in, that, in Romans uh, 15, 8 through 12. He quotes the writings, verses 9-11, the law, verse 10, and the prophets, verse 12 to show that the inclusion of Gentiles with Jews in the praise of God has always been part of God's purposes. As I just said, part of that covenant he made with Abraham was that the blessing from Abraham's descendant would be worldwide. It would no longer be relegated to the Jewish nation alone. What's this mean? God's plan had always been universal. God's plan has always been for the nations. And in the fullness of time, he would send his son, the root of Jesse, verse 12, who would bring together the nations under his rule. So in other words, the Lord Jesus came so that Jew and Gentile both would be accepted before God. That's wonderful. Christ's appearance, it provided a dual purpose. Fulfillment to the promises that God had made to the Jews, but it also provided for Gentile inclusion into the people of God. And the differences, remember the difference between stronger and weaker? Was really a difference between Jew and Gentile. So now Paul said, listen, I just showed you. Christ came for both. Therefore, the two groups ought to warmly and enthusiastically receive and welcome each other as family. This is my brother. This is my sister. And Paul prays for that. Look at verse 13, the final verse there. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I love this. Now listen, folks, this is where we're closing. The two groups, Jew and Gentile, stronger and weaker, they're still going to arrive at different conclusions on certain issues. They're not called to think exactly alike. But these differences don't have to break them. They don't have to hinder the fellowship that they have in Christ. What? We're citizens where? Citizens of heaven, members of the kingdom of God. Thus, joy and peace belong to us because they are purchased by Christ. Joy and peace. But if you're going to enjoy joy and you're going to enjoy peace and you're going to abound in hope, it must be the God of hope who's going to do it. Paul knows this isn't going to work by man's efforts. That's why he prays, may the God of hope fill you with this. In this new covenant community, the new people of God, Jew and Gentile, alike are to be praising God together with one voice, united in Christ, and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Now what? What do we do, 21st century Kitts Hill, Ohio? Realize that God loves diversity, first of all. Friends, I, we live in a very homogenous area. Most of us come from this very similar background. But the church universal is not like Mamre. And we need to understand and celebrate and welcome and applaud other believers when they look different, different skin tones, different language groups. We need to understand that. We're one body. Same Lord, same faith, same baptism, same table. 
And here, even at Mamre, in this church, there will be differences between believers on certain issues. Just go around and poll each other, if you will. We're not going to think alike. We're not going to feel alike. And we will not even reason to the same end. So what do we do? Barry Cooper. As believers, we should be united in our desire to obey God's laws. When God says it, it doesn't matter what you and I feel. That's his law. We should feel free to exercise freedom in matters not necessary to salvation. But, here's the caveat, as we exercise that freedom, we should be mindful of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Walk in love, guys. God has called you out of the kingdom of man. He placed you into the kingdom that belongs to him. And what is valued is walking in love and humility and service. So how did God bring us into the kingdom? By grace. By grace. Sheer grace. And you and I are called to extend that grace to our brothers and sisters, realizing that God has accepted them. As Christ has received us, let us receive and welcome each other. And as so you're doing it, consider Christ and what he has done. Humble yourself and seek greatness in the kingdom by seeking greatness in service. Let's pray.